This is a CBC podcast. So, I have a secret to tell you guys, but you have to promise not to tell anyone, okay? I like math. I know, shocker, right? Just kidding. You probably already know this about me. I mean, I even did a math episode about zero and infinity in season one. I really like the satisfaction of having one concrete right answer. And it's not like philosophical where you're going to have to interpret all this wishy-washy stuff. Nah, too vague. I like a solid answer. But honestly, a lot of people don't feel the same way about math. And I mean a lot of people. I've always hated math. Just in general. Yeah. I don't know, it's not my thing. Um, this year it actually wasn't that bad. I had a really good teacher. Um, but other years, it's just not been my favorite subject. Yeah, uh, for me, it's like when I was in middle school, it, like I didn't struggle with it. I was pretty good at it, but I also didn't particularly enjoy it. I've not always been great at math. Um, like middle school, I was pretty bad at math. It was like very stressful for me. Um, this year was pretty good, actually. Like, I got good grades and stuff. But math, I think, has and always will be a source of, like, stress. Because, you know, it, it's, it freaks me out, for sure. Those are my friends Piper, Maylin, and Caden. They kind of got me thinking, why does math freak people out? Why do so many people say math just isn't their thing? Why doesn't everyone feel the same way about math as I do? Ty Asks Why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you just really want to have answered. Why does junk food taste so good? What can I do when I'm anxious? How do animals know where they're going? Can we keep eating meat without destroying the planet? And why is math so hard to love? Whenever I talk to people about math, even grown-ups, I hear a lot of the same things. Stuff like, math is hard, I just can't do math, or they'll have that look of panic that's like, oh no, I have to do math now? And I always thought it's kind of strange because you don't have the same kind of reactions with other subjects like English or art or geography. You don't hear highly educated people walking around bragging that they're not reading people, but you hear highly educated people all the time kind of saying, oh, I'm not a math person. That's Sion Bylock. She's the president of Barnard College at Columbia University, and she's also a cognitive scientist. She studies one of the big reasons people don't like math, math anxiety. Math anxiety is really a fear or apprehension about numbers and doing math. And, you know, what I think is so interesting about it is it's not just about complex math. It can be really simple math, whether it's um, figuring out the tip on a dinner bill as all your smart friends look on, or just looking at a math book and seeing all the numbers in it. Now, how common is it for people to be anxious about math? In the United States and North America, it's very common. Um, oftentimes, most adults talk about some negative experience with math, feeling some apprehension. 
this anxiety can start really, really early. For a while, researchers thought it started around middle school, but Sion and her team have found that it can start as early as grade one. That's so early. And it's kind of sad to think of these really young kids already stressing about math tests and thinking they just can't do math. So, you know the saying, I'm just not really a math person? Is there much truth to that? Like, are some people math people and some people just aren't? So I really don't believe that we're one thing or another and that it's prescribed from birth. I think math is a skill like anything else you learn. Now, of course, there are some people who have developmental disorders or have learning differences. But really, I think oftentimes people think that math is something you're sort of endowed with. It's you have it or you don't. Um, and that's just not true. You learn math like you learn anything else. Reading, um, everything we do, a musical instrument. So I've always loved math, but it's still something I've had to work on a lot. Math is kind of unique as a subject. It's one of the first places in school where kids will have an answer that's either right or wrong. I mean, think about it. That poem you wrote in third grade, it wasn't right or wrong. I mean, it wasn't Shakespeare per se, but it's not like it was incorrect or anything. No one likes that feeling of getting something wrong. It can really make you feel like math just isn't your thing. You know, it's really damaging because when you say you're not something, you don't try at it. You stay away from it. I mean, we don't like to do things that make us uncomfortable, that we don't think we're good at. And so it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You decide to take less math in school. You don't study as much as you would for a test. You just, you shy away from it and it reinforces this idea that you don't have it. Wow, so having math anxiety can really affect your skills in math because that anxiety might mean you don't want to study for the test, so maybe you don't do as well, and then you feel like you're not good at it, and then maybe you don't want to study again, and it just makes that vicious cycle. In one of Sion's studies, the researchers asked people to solve math problems. There were easy ones, and there were harder ones, and they offered to pay people more to do the harder ones. And these people who were anxious about math wouldn't do them. They would rather be paid less than to just try a harder math problem. What makes people react this way? I talked to Daniel Ansari about this. He's a professor of psychology and education at Western University. He runs something called the Numerical Cognition Laboratory, which is basically dedicated to figuring out how kids learn math and why some struggle with it. He told me what's happening in our brains when we're doing math. So let's take something as simple as deciding which of two numbers is larger. For example, you see the digit 5 and the digit 8, and you have to decide which one is larger. Well, there's lots of things that have to happen in order for you to be able to do that. First of all, you have to be able to recognize the numbers on the page or the screen in front of you. Okay, so you have to know that this weird squiggle is called a five, and this other weird squiggle is called an eight. And that's something called symbolic representation. Then you have to know what each of those numbers means, that it refers to a specific quantity. 
Right, so you also have to understand that five could mean five fingers, five dollars, or five donuts. And you have to engage in the decision-making process as well. So there's what we would refer to as perception, uh, cognition, so being able to access the meaning of the numbers, and then action, which is making the actual decision. Who knew that we needed to understand so much before we could tell whether or not five is bigger than eight? Once you understand it, it gets even more complicated. Then we have to learn how to mess around with these numbers, add them together, divide them, multiply them. A big part of what Daniel studies is why people have trouble with that part. There is a high proportion of individuals that struggle with some of these very basic numerical and mathematical concepts that we've discussed. So we think that between five to 7% of the population has mathematical learning difficulties. That is, they fail to uh, grasp fundamental concepts uh, around, you know, for example, the connections between symbols and quantities. And that represents a great stumbling block for them because they lack certain tools in that toolkit. So building a fully fledged mathematical brain is very difficult for them. I almost get weekly emails also from adults who have now realized that when they were children, they probably had mathematical learning difficulties or it's sometimes referred to as developmental dyscalculia. Um, I'm sorry, what was that word? Dyscalculia? Yeah. Uh, what is that? Um, so have you heard of developmental dyslexia? Yeah. So you can think about developmental dyscalculia sort of being analogous in the domain of numeracy and mathematics. Students with developmental dyscalculia struggle with very basic aspects of maths. So students with dyscalculia never develop the same level of fluency as their peers they need to continue to use counting strategies to solve even simple addition problems. And they don't get to that stage where they can just retrieve the answer to simple addition problems from memory. What that means is that people with dyscalculia really struggle to get past the point of counting on their fingers to figure out what five plus eight is. Now, if you're someone who struggles with math, you might be thinking to yourself, Oh, dang, do I have dyscalculia? The interesting thing is that very recent research clearly shows that math anxiety and dyscalculia are not the same thing. In other words, you can get students who have very high math anxiety, but are nevertheless quite good at math. So that gives us some hope that if somebody presents with math anxiety, it doesn't mean that they necessarily have a mathematical learning difficulty. It's just that they had some experience that triggered them to feel anxious when they have to solve mathematical problems. So there's probably ways in which we can treat that and allow them to enjoy learning math. I see this in my friends. I help my friend Mei Lin with her math homework sometimes, and she's really good at it. Like, she often doesn't even need my help. Now, I'm not bad at it, but I don't like it. Mm, yeah. And there's some parts of it that, like, I feel like I'm pretty good at understanding concepts, but if I don't know a concept, I don't know a concept, but I don't technically know if that makes me bad at it. 
then there's the whole difference between doing math on your own time versus taking a test. I mean, who likes a test, especially when you're under pressure? I do better during the unit and like doing the work during the actual unit than I do on the test. So I don't think that it's an accurate reflection of how I do. Um, I always get nervous before tests. It's just like a common thing, no matter the subject. Uh, for me, some tests, like no matter how hard I studied, I would not do well. So I'm always like, I don't know, there was one test that I specifically remember that I completely failed after like 10 hours of studying. So I'm always stressed out that that's going to happen. Yeah, I get that. I mean, you know that feeling when you walk into a classroom and see the test packet on your desk and you go, oh, I've just forgotten everything I've ever learned in this subject. And you just get really panicked. That feeling can actually affect how you do on the test. The way that psychologists think about it is that it, the anxiety takes away some of your mental resources. So if you're going into that room and it says test, now you're starting to think, oh my God, I don't want to take that test. I feel so nervous. I feel so anxious. My stomach is, I've got knots in my stomach. So you're ruminating, you're reflecting on this. And that takes away mental energy that you would otherwise have to devote to the task. To be a bit more technical, what researchers think happens when you have high levels of anxiety and you're doing a test is that you have less working memory available. Now, what is working memory? Working memory is the ability to hold information online while you're doing a different task. So if I'm trying to do a complicated math problem, but I'm also stuck thinking about how nervous I am, I'll have less mental resources in that moment to actually solve the problem that's right in front of me. But Sion says that the super anxious feeling doesn't always mean bad news. It actually means that your body is gearing up for the task ahead. So when you walk into that math test and your heart is beating and your palms are sweaty, remember that that's not a sign you're going to fail. It's a sign you're ready to go, that your heart is pumping blood to your brain so it can think. And we've actually shown that when students remind themselves of that, they actually do better on tests, right? It's, so it's how you're interpreting what you know and what your body's doing that matters. So the knots in my stomach before a test is actually just my brain going, yeah, we got this, we're gonna rock the test. And as long as I can remind myself of that, I probably won't drain my mental resources. I noticed that in talking about this with my friends, you might've noticed this too, that the girls in the group seem to feel this math anxiety more. My sample pool is pretty small, but there is a gender gap in math. That's actually another thing Sion studies. Yeah, so we know that girls and women on average tend to have more math anxiety than boys. Um, and part of this, I think, comes back to this notion of either you either have math ability or you don't because we tend, unfortunately, to ascribe brilliance and um, having knowledge to men more than women in our society. And so it's very easy for young girls, for women to think that, oh, I just don't have this ability, I'm not good at this, and worry about it. There are examples all over the place of this bias against girls when it comes to math. 
there was this Barbie uh, called the Teen Talk Barbie where you pulled a cord and it said, math is hard, let's go shopping. Or I've even seen t-shirts that say things like, I'm too pretty to do math. You know, it sends a very strong signal that math and girls don't go together. That is, that Barbie sounds horrible. To Horrible. Thankfully, that Barbie is not sold anymore. But there are still lots of toys that send girls the same message. Just maybe a little bit more subtly. Sion says that this is an example of something that's socially generated, and it doesn't have any biological basis. It's really sad that so many people are getting these messages from all over the place that they just can't do math, especially because for lots of them, it's mostly just this anxiety getting in the way. Sion says that anxiety stems from a few different places. We know that when parents have attitudes um, about learning or about what they can or can't do or about what their kids can or can't do, the kids can pick up on that. And we've actually shown that when parents are anxious about their own math ability, um, when they help their young kids with math homework, it can backfire because kids actually pick up on the anxiety of the parents, they learn less math, I mean, I think if the parent says something like, oh, don't worry, I was never good at this either, that sends a very clear signal. So what I'm not suggesting is that parents who are worried about math just stay away from math with their kids. But what I am suggesting is that parents um, can, you know, educate themselves a little bit and, and make sure that they're modeling good behavior for the kids. And being clear about your message, right? Yeah, this was hard for me, but I worked through it and we can get through it. And that's how you get better at math rather than saying, oh, it's okay. I'm not good at this either. That sends a very different message about kids' ability to learn. Wow, this could create a sort of feedback loop then. If your parent was anxious about math, that can spill down to you. So then you become anxious about math too. And then when your kid is learning math, the same thing can happen all over again. Sion found the same thing can also happen with teachers. So we went into a very large school system and we actually looked at kids' anxiety and their performance in math and there's teachers' anxiety. And we looked at the beginning of the school year and as you might expect, there was no relationship between teachers and their kids because they just got into the classrooms. But what we found is that by the end of the school year, when kids were in classrooms with teachers who were more anxious about math, they learned less math across the school year. And it wasn't teachers' knowledge of math and their knowledge of teaching math. It was literally teachers' own worries about their own math abilities that tended to drive down kids' own math scores and achievement across the school year. This is crazy. Same as the parents, the way a teacher feels about math can affect the students and can actually change how much they learn, not just how they feel about math. Mariam Hajir has thought a lot about stuff like this. She teaches math in Surrey, BC, and she's had a complicated relationship with math. I ran away from math. I hated math. Um, even in university, I tried my best to do everything I could to avoid taking math. And so when I got hired to teach in high school, the one thing I said during my interview was, do not, I'll, I will teach any subject, but do not give me math. Guess what they gave me? <laughs> math. <laughs> so 
Math and I have a very, very interesting relationship. Yeah, that's right. She's a math teacher who hated math. And yeah, it might seem totally counterintuitive. So I, I remember at the time I went to a colleague of mine, Mr. Singh, um, he was, he, he's passed away now, but he's one of the best math teachers I know. And I said, I'm really nervous about teaching math. Um, you know, I wasn't the best at math. And, you know, he said to me, you're going to be a way better math teacher than me. And I was like, what? Why? And he's, he said to me, he said, because you struggled and had difficulties, you're going to know exactly where the kids are going to go wrong right? Like you're going to know where they're going to fumble. You're going to know what makes them anxious. So in having that experience, you're going to be able to identify um, loopholes that I maybe can't as easily. And that was a really good confidence booster for me. And then I just kind of ran with that. And now I love teaching math. So yeah, I've come a long way. I love that. Because she stumbled, she knows where her students are going to stumble too, and she can weave that into her lessons. I started to teach it in a way where I was thinking out loud to my high school self. So I pictured my high school self sitting in that classroom, and I still do this. I'll be like, oh my god, okay, I know where you guys are going to mess up. This is where people mess up all the time. This is where I mess up. These are the mistakes that I make. And so I catch myself doing a lot of self-talk as I'm working through the problems. It's not just like, okay guys, here's step one, step two, step three. It's more like, okay, we've got this problem. Let's try to figure it out. And then thinking out loud, thinking about all the bumps that are going to come through. And doing those two things really helped me overcome my own anxiety. And then I think it's also just helped me find like love for math because now I look at it as like this problem that I have to solve and it's fun. I like this idea that she's communicating with her high school self and the two of them are like high-fiving each other because now they rock math. But Miriam has students all the time who just don't share her love of math. She tries to connect it to the lives of her students. So if she's doing a percents unit, she doesn't just stick with the example of splitting up a pie. Instead, she'll talk about things like incarceration rates in the U.S. and Canada to show students that math is super connected to the world around us. I try to get students to see that the processes that we have in math in terms of like all the logical steps and formulas and you know the critical thinking that goes into problem solving, that is not exclusive to math. Formulas exist everywhere. And so for example, if you're writing an essay, if you don't follow a formula, no one will know what you're saying. So I try to teach students that, that there's, there's no escaping or running away from formulas, right? It's, it's there all around us. I think that's beautiful. Just kind of like weaving little bits of math into everything. Then once you go into your English class and you just like, boom, get reminded of math. And in a way you've won because they're like, oh, shoot, I'm doing math again. And then yeah. eventually they'll embrace it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, math really is all around us, right? And if we begin to see that, if we begin to see how it's useful and helpful and why we need it and what implications it has, it's really beneficial. And I think it, it maybe inspires and motivates students. One of the other things Marion does is change the language she uses around math. So instead of starting a new unit by saying, okay, guys, this is tough stuff, buckle your seatbelts. She'll say, ah, oh, don't worry, this is not a problem at all. This is easy stuff. And Seal, the math anxiety researcher, told me stuff like this is really important. Changing the way we talk about math 
that can change the way we think about it, too. She also wants to see changes in when people do math. Sian has studied this app that parents and kids can use to do math at bedtime. Sort of like reading a bedtime story, but it's math. So bedtime math is really um, a tool that parents can use to do fun and creative and engaging story problems with their kids. And the idea is to get parents and kids interacting together around interesting math ideas and to bring math in uh, to the home just like you'd bring a bedtime story. And my research team and I studied the efficacy of bedtime math. And what we showed is that for kids and parents who did bedtime math across the school year, and it didn't have to be too much, even just a couple times a month. Uh, those kids learn more math across the school year and especially were benefited if their parents tended to be anxious about math. It's sort of a tool for nervous parents to use with their kids. I kind of love the idea of math being part of bedtime routines like reading is. Or just weaving math into other aspects of our life besides homework and class. Maybe that would make it seem less daunting and more fun. Or at least make it seem like a normal part of our lives. Even my friends who don't all love math get that we kind of need it. Yeah, I think math is important, but I don't think certain aspects of math are really necessary. Like the stuff that, you know, you're never ever going to use ever in real life. I think math is important because in a way, learning math teaches you logic. Um, I think that math is important, and I think that most subjects that are taught in school are important. But I think that the strain that society puts on all of these subjects and your ability to do them is like an overstatement. I just, they make it sound like if you are not good at math, you're going to fail at life. Daniel Ansari says we need to understand math because math is everywhere. We live in a culture where numbers are essential to us understanding not just financial transactions, but I think a much larger part of it is to be able to be an informed individual, to be able to process numerical information that we want to understand, relationships in our world that we can only access if we have a basic understanding of math. Another reason that's I think it's, there's a lot of beauty in math. It's, it's an incredible achievement that huma, humanity has developed over the course of cultural history. So to participate in that is part of being human, I think. Guys, I know I'm a bit of a math nerd, so I'm a little bit biased, but I love the idea that we all live in a world of math, and that it's beautiful, but also that it's not something we should be afraid of. I know that it can get complicated, but next time you have this thought that you can't do the math problem or that you're going to fail the test, just take some deep breaths. Put on the problem-solving hat and just remember the panicky feeling you have doesn't mean you're going to fail. Try to focus on small victories you had on your last math test or when you put up your hand for an answer and nailed it. That's huge. But most of all, be patient with yourself. You're probably better at math than you think. Ty asked why.
Thank you so much for listening. I'm Ty Poole. This show was produced by Rachel Levy-McLaughlin, Eunice Kim, and Judy D. Gu. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons. Graham McDonald is our sound designer. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my papa, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mama, Nikki Poole. Thanks to my friends Piper, Caden, Mei Lin, and Finn for sharing their thoughts about math. And thanks to Austin Pomeroy for setting them up to record. Today, my guests were Sion Bylock, Daniel Anzari, and Mariam Hajir. If you're interested in that app Sion was talking about, Bedtime Math, you can download it for Apple devices or for Android. SK Robert is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and the director of CBC Podcasts is Arup Narani. If you liked this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Please consider taking some time to rate and review Ty Asks Why on your favorite podcast app. It makes a big difference in helping others find the show. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.